ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. First Nations people were the first scientists in Australia. But they don't just stay in the past tense. They're still here and still actively contributing to science. I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. Maggie Walter is Palawa and she spent her career asking big questions about how we think about First Nations science. Yapalingana, Mina, Maggie Walter, Mina, Palawa, Briggs, Tepakuna, Lutruwita, Wiziwaranti, uh, Kali Mapali, Milathena. Hi, my name is Maggie Walter. I am Palawa. I'm a member of the Briggs Tasmanian Aboriginal family uh, from Tepakuna country, Lutruwita, Tasmania, and I acknowledge that we're meeting here on Aboriginal land and I pay my respects to the Palawa peoples, the owners of this country, skies and waterways. To begin, in mid-2020, a group of non-Māori professors from the University of Auckland published an open letter entitled In Defence of Science. Its purpose was to protest a recent school curriculum change whereby Māori knowledges were given parity with Western knowledges. The problem, the professors argued, was that equating Māori knowledge with science would send disturbing understandings and mistrust in science. Māori knowledges, they argued, were critical for the preservation and the perpetuation of culture, but not science. Interestingly, Amid these claims, the authors did not actually define science. It was Māori knowledge they defined as culture, as traditional, as local. Similar viewpoints are common here. Indigenous knowledges tend to consistent positioning as culturally based and emerging from traditional Aboriginal practices. My topic, therefore, is can Indigenous knowledge be science? And if so, does it have to be linked to Aboriginal deep time to be real? At its simplest, science is any form of planned inquiry that uses the scientific method of observing, analysing and interpreting. As the Māori scholars argued in rebuttal, where Māori knowledge is based on such systematic inquiry, it is science. The same logic applies to Aboriginal knowledge. But do such knowledges have to be traditional? My answer is firmly no. Indigenous knowledges like Western knowledges evolve and emerge. Think back to my introduction where I use Palawakani. Now, Palawakani is the reconstructed language of the Tasmanian Aboriginal peoples. Colonisation of Luchrawitta was rapid, brutal and little interested in the people whose lands it was taking. Within 50 years of the first colonial incursion, nearly all uh, Palawa speakers were dead. So when the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre embarked on the mammoth task of reconstructing language in the 1990s, only small snippets were to be found, either in the records of the colonisers, such as George Augustus Robinson, or in the surviving Palawa families. So they turned to linguistics, the scientific study of language, to develop a reconstruction frame. But wait, I hear you say, linguistics is Western, not so fast. My reliable guide, Wikipedia, is quite clear that the earliest known linguistic text traces back to Mesopotamia. 
So Aboriginal use of linguistic methods is no less valid than Aboriginal adoption of such methods. More critically, it's the use of linguistic methods within an Indigenous methodology that created the new language knowledge. Again, I hear you probably ask, what's the difference? Aren't they the same thing? The terms are often used interchangeably, but they are most definitely not the same. So methods are the tools and techniques of research, and methodology is the worldview through which the research is designed and conducted. So while linguistic tools were used to create a robust basis from which to reconstruct language, the worldview that shaped that work was definitively Palawa. Let's move to my own uh, area, quantitative social science. I use statistical methods, but Indigenous methodologies. Again, statistics are not a Western invention. Wikipedia, again, confirms that the ancient Greeks and Romans used statistics to record attributes of their populations, much as the same as we do now. So using statistical techniques, therefore, is not a preserve of Western science. But let me digress for just a moment. Have a think. How many people here thought about their race today? How many of you worried about whether your racial identity might, make, might impact how welcome you were at this venue tonight? The point I'm making relates to the constitutive parts of methodology, ontology and epistemology. So as epistemology is the theory of knowledge, concerning with how the rules of what is counted as knowledge and who can be knowledgeable are set. Ontology is related to the nature of being, or what constitutes reality. It's about how you see and understand the world and your own position in it. So in short, the research approach, the methodology, is determined essentially by who your knowers are and how they perceive and experience the research topic. So when I was a part of a group of researchers asked by an Aboriginal organisation to help them understand race relations in their city, I was really excited. The research had to elicit Aboriginal lived reality of race relations. So epistemologically, our research positioned the Aboriginal population as the primary knowers. Ontologically, we sought Aboriginal understandings of race relations, their reality and day-to-day -day experience of these because these people do think about race every day. And they do have to think about how uh, reactions to their racial identity might play out in different spaces. Now, this worldview is in stark contrast to how Western statistics have traditionally understood race relations. Francis Galton, a founder of statistical theory, also founded eugenics. His theory of races, positive Negroes, as two grades lower in intelligence than white Britons. Carl Pearson of correlation coefficients, the chi-squared test and principal components analysis lauded North American colonisation, noting that in place of the red man contributing practically nothing to the work and thought of the world, we have a great nation. Galton's theories and Pearson's tests still underpin statistical analysis today. Perhaps you think I'm being a bit unfair citing 19th century scholars. Contemporary Indigenous statistics are better, but not much. Check for yourself when you've got a moment. Google uh, the term Aboriginal statistics 
and that will elicit for you a huge array of data confirming Aboriginal peoples as the poorest, sickest, least educated, most incarcerated, etc., etc., in Australia. You've all seen these data. Now, these data are accurate and gut-wrenching. But being factual does not excuse the narrowness of the worldview from which they emanate. The relentless and unaddressed tide of trauma and harm they represent replicates again and again the deficit framing of Aboriginal peoples by those who took their lands. They are the reason that Indigenous peoples across the Western world are demanding Indigenous data sovereignty. But that's a topic for another day. What these data don't tell you is what Aboriginal people want to know about themselves. They don't reflect what Aboriginal people think about anything or provide any insight into how Aboriginal people understand Australian society and the position of Aboriginal peoples within it. So back to our study of race relations. We surveyed 470 Aboriginal residents using proportional sampling to mirror population attributes. We asked their opinion on race relations and their own experiences of being disrespected or treated unfairly because they were Aboriginal. We asked what they did when these things happened. We also asked their opinion of white culture and what they thought white people thought about race relations. We asked how they rated the legal system in general and for them. And this is what we found. A large majority felt that race relations were not good and getting worse. Experiencing racism was common for two thirds. And while those who were visible, such as the homeless, recorded the highest rates, having a good education and or a good job were no protection. A large majority felt that Aboriginal people were routinely spoken to like they didn't matter and they were not wanted in the city, despite most being traditional owners of that place. Only a very few thought that white people tried to understand Aboriginal culture, and a large majority, while agreeing that white law was necessary, did not think it worked in their favour. Now, this short talk, of course, does not do justice to that very much larger research, but it does evidence my topic. So was this research science? Yes. Did it produce Indigenous knowledge? Again, yes. Was it traditional? Well, no. Pre-colonisation, race relations weren't really a thing for Aboriginal people. So thank you for listening, and I hope I've convinced you that Indigenous knowledges do not have to be traditional to be real. Woolaka. That was Maggie Walter, Palawa from Lutruwita, Tasmania, a member of the Tasmanian Briggs family, and Distinguished Professor Emerita of Sociology at the University of Tasmania. She was speaking at our Occam's Razor live show at Willie Smith's Apple Shed in the Huon Valley in August. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and there will be more science to explore right here next week. G'day, I'm tech reporter James Pertill. The very first time I used ChatGPT AI, I asked it to write a poem for my dog. <coughs> The poem it wrote was heartbreakingly beautiful. Artificial intelligence is suddenly everywhere. It's driving cars, getting people sacked, and it's helping students with their homework. So how did we get here? Where's next? And who's in charge? In the new series of Science Friction, Hello AI Overlords, I'm finding out. Science Friction, 5pm Sundays on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app.